One of the areas of computing that I'm really curious about, and I think the software world has a lot to learn from, is game programming. I mean, probably not on a surface level. I've never worked for an e-commerce company that needed collision detection. But get below that surface, and a lot of modern games, especially once they go multiplayer, they're dealing with things like global networking issues, multi-user concurrency, competitive concurrency, massive data volumes under brutal latency requirements. They have a lot of the programming issues that we're familiar with, but under much harsher conditions. And being a somewhat separate world, they tend to approach the solution from a novel angle. So this week, we're going to go digging for system design ideas in the gaming world. And my guest for this is Tyler Cloutier. He's got a background in distributed systems and data science for the gaming industry. And he's currently building Bitcraft, which is a massive multiplayer open world game. And to support it, a really interesting flavor of database called Spacetime DB, from which we're going to mine some ideas about concurrency, transactions, data, security, query management, lots more. A lot of juicy ideas solved from an angle that I'd never considered. So let's get going. I'm your host, Chris Jenkins. This is Developer Voices. And today's voice is Tyler Cloutier. My guest this week is Tyler Cloutier. How are you doing, Tyler? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm very well. I'm... Um, you're going to take me to a new world for me because I have a long history in programming, but one thing I've never done is um, computer game programming. And along with that, the one thing I've always wondered is they must have a lot of the same problems that the rest of us industrial programmers have. Not like they're dealing with graphics and story and stuff, but then there are data problems everywhere, right? That's right. Actually, I would say... Um, what I have experienced is that they have the normal problems that everybody else has, but times a hundred, because not only do they have to build the thing, but it has to interact with all of it, the data uh, in the program besides just sort of individual parts. And then it has to go really, really fast. Yeah. Yeah. All our problems except at 60 times a second. That's right. Yeah. So your background is originally in game design or data science for games or what's your origin story my original background is actually in chemical and biomolecular engineering which is <laughs> okay. completely unrelated to games uh and then i did my master's in um, computer science focusing on distributed systems and machine learning okay uh after that i i did some time at bloomberg and then apple and then a company called machine zone which uh, is a game development company right and what did you do for them so there I worked in their uh, data science uh, and engineering department uh, as a data science uh, engineer. Uh, and there we were building uh, two things. One, pipelines for data. So making sure that uh, we got the real live data uh, as quickly as possible into a form that we could then uh, feed into our models. So then the second part of what I did is also build those models, uh, which predicted various things about how players are likely to behave. So like... Um, how likely is this player to turn? How likely is this player to spend money? Will they give us a good review? That kind of thing. This is a pay-to-play game. This is a free-to-play game, actually, that is quite expensive, uh, ultimately. <laughs> <laughs> because it's the business model where like, most players don't pay anything, but some pay for like 
cosmetics upgrades that kind of thing and they spend um, a lot no no it's much worse than that so it's a mobile game okay. uh okay. and um it the the whole idea of the game is it's supposed to simulate what it feels like to be a king and so uh what that ends up being is that you have this little uh city it's called a 4x game uh which is for the four different uh types of play that you're going to do and um uh you build the city up you upgrade your buildings uh, and then you can start sending marches out to attack other players. And ultimately, you want to capture a uh, what's called a wonder, which will give you, make you the king of the kingdom. And right. uh, the process of capturing that wonder is quite an expensive endeavor. So uh, the way it works is that um, they sell you speed-ups. So upgrades take time. You can speed things up by paying for it. Uh, and some people pay quite a lot. Uh, there were individuals who spent... Um, upwards of several million dollars in that game several correct. million you heard that correct <laughs> if i <laughs> if i did not see it myself i would not have believed it gee i can't i struggle to compute why someone would do that and how they can be rich enough that that's their disposable income the, there were saudi princes there were people of that kind i mean it was a global game and so uh, it attracted a lot of people who were interested in simulating what it felt like to be a king there was um one person who uh was rumored to have hired uh, at least one person or a team of people to actually purchase and open the packs because uh it's actually mechanically a lot of work to open a, uh one million dollars worth of a hundred dollar packs right that's ten thousand <laughs> that's ten thousand packs um so there's that uh there was another person who used to fly his entire uh, alliance out to the Las Ve to Las Vegas to be closer to the servers, so that they could do the Super Wonder event uh, more effectively. That's, I mean, a that's really weird. But b is it that much weirder than traders putting their computers right by the main exchange? That I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I suppose not. I mean, these people really cared about the game. The the I, I asked players, you know, why are you so interested in this game? And I remember one uh, told me I'm a security guard at uh, a place or something to that effect. And I just sat there all day and I downloaded this just to pass the time. But over time I found that um, I had like real actual friends in this game. And um, when I would log on, they'd say, Oh my God, this person's here. And he felt like somebody, whereas in real life, he did not really feel like someone. And that, that was important to him. Okay. I can see that. But, okay, so curious game mechanics, but that's not why I want to talk to you. The, sure thing. The, the, the thing that's, the reason I get into that is because you're there clearly in a background where there's serious amounts of data coming in live and serious money it, to be made in understanding the flow of that data. Certainly, yep. Tell me about that and how it led into what you did next. Sure, so... Um... Now, this is an interesting uh, story because it's sort of obliquely leads into what we actually ended up building uh, because certainly my time at, at Machine Zone inspired it. Um, but it's not the way I would explain exactly what we're doing. But let me tell you, I suppose, the origin story. So um, while I was at Machine Zone, always we wanted historical data. So we wanted to know not only this is the current power of this individual or this is the current set of items that they have, but what is the full history of what they have? So we can predict, for example, hey, look, um, this 
person was attacked, they got zeroed out, and now they left the game and they're not likely to come back. We always wanted to know that data. Yeah. And Machine Zone didn't have that data because the traditional um, infrastructure uh, of companies is uh, to have their game data or their uh, really website data in normal relational databases. Like uh, in this case, I believe it was MySQL. Right. Uh, and the problem is when you update someone's power in those databases, the old power goes away. So you need to have some kind of a way to actually get that historical data. And what they started to do was they were snapshotting their databases every 12 hours. Uh, right. And we would then get that snapshot data and we'd try to piece together a historical data. But that was very sad for two reasons. The first reason is that the data itself was awful because a lot can happen in 12 hours that could cause you to leave the game, right? So you don't really have that information. And I should also say there was another stream of data, which was just event data. But it was very loosey-goosey event data that was sort of whatever people had slapped together. Um, right. So you tried to build up a picture of what had happened historically from these two sources. And the other reason the snapshotting data was bad was that um, it was enormous. Because if you think about it, 99% of the data in a database does not change in 12 hours. If 99% of your players have churned, you're just copying this old data every 12 hours. And so eventually they had to purge the old data so they couldn't keep it forever. Right. And um, they spent millions of dollars trying to clean up this data and get it into a form. Uh, we built uh, a system which was on based on the Lambda architecture. And if you're not familiar with how the Lambda architecture works, uh, you essentially set up a streaming part of your data uh, data pipeline and you set up a sort of a batch part of your data pipeline and you try to weave those two together. So you might put um, all of your big, well-formed data in Hive, uh, which is a, a write append-only database made by Facebook uh, for large data. And then you would have like something like Flink or uh, Apache Spark taking your real-time data and trying to make decisions based on that and, and bringing it in with your batch process data as well. Yeah. It's a huge amount of work. Um, and I would say 95% of the data science was actually just getting the data into the right form in the right place at the right time. <laughs> yeah. Probably That's a very familiar that. statement that spans way past gaming, right? Absolutely. So when we began to build our own game, uh, I decided I'm not going to have it. We are going to have... Uh, the full history of the data. So I want to be able to go back to any point in time and actually see what the game state was. But more than that, I want to actually be able to replay it at that time so that you could hop into the game at that time and actually see it being replayed. On that level of granularity? Yeah. On that level of granularity. Right. So you're not so, just storing events, but like player thumbstick movements and stuff. Correct. Yeah. Um, and actually, I saw... Uh, um, on an earlier podcast that you had, I think it was maybe two weeks ago, you were talking about event streaming. Mm. Uh, and um, the guest there said at the end, um, you know, this doesn't always work for for everything. It doesn't work, for example, for games. And I thought, aha, how, how wrong you are. In fact, <laughs> this is exactly what we're doing. Um, so event sourcing is uh, is essentially what SpaceTimeDB does. Okay, that's colossal amounts of data, very widely distributed user base high response times required because you've got to deal with things 60 frames a second ideally that's a big challenge 
how do you start to break that down? And what's your approach? Let, I think the best place to start is to first understand what the game is that we're trying to build. Mm. Uh, and then from that, you can see why Space 90B is a, is a necessary requirement. So we have two products. We have a game called Bitcraft Online, which is a massively multiplayer online role-playing game. Uh, you can sort of think of it as like a combination between uh, RuneScape, if you're familiar with that, and Minecraft. So uh, there's this very uh, long-term skilling and progression in the game, but at the same time, you can actually change and edit the world uh, and build your own things within the world. Right. So that's the game that we set out to build. And uh, in order to do that, notably, the first thing you, you think is, well, we need to put everybody in a single world, logically, because you can't have people occupying the same space in the way that you could in a normal MMORPG because they actually are editing the world. So if I was a normal MMORPG, I could put many, many instances all in the same city, right? Doesn't matter. Yeah. In our game, it certainly does because you actually need to do that. So now you have a very interesting distributed systems uh, challenge on your hands. Yeah, you've got a large global mutatable state. Correct. And it has to be persistent. So if your servers crash people want to have their buildings that they spent their time building and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so that's, that's the first thing uh, you have to understand about how we came at this problem. Um, and so in order to do that, we realized, okay, well, we need a system uh, which is built around the persistence, right? Because if we're going to be making these uh, permanent changes to the world and it is everywhere, either we're going to be, um, doing the normal architecture of games, which I'll take a brief aside to explain. So the normal architecture is you'd have a game server. You'd have your databases. The game server itself, unlike a web server, would have quite a bit of state, right? And you at period at periodic times or when people did important events would write to the database with a transaction and then yep. you'd, you'd get that back. But you as the developer are doing a lot of work to... Um, maintain i suppose synchronicity between your database and your game server state because for example if i kill an enemy yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of things you can do that make things uh, pretty crazy but if i kill an enemy um that enemy is probably not uh their position is probably not stored in the database but they that there was an enemy might be um, or that you picked up items probably is because if as soon as you enter your inventory, you don't want to lose that. Yeah. Um, or you could do it periodically and then they could do replays and stuff. What you end up getting to is a place where you're spending a lot of your time as the game developer, not thinking about the actual gameplay programming and rather thinking about the distributed system environment in which you're actually building this game. Yeah, I can believe that. So what we decided to do is say, we are going to make that all, I suppose, opaque to the, to the game developer, and we're going to put them in a context where they're operating inside a transaction already. Uh, that transaction is going to be manipulating in-memory data, and then we are going to do all of the necessary things to persist that data to disk so that the gameplay programmer does not have to think about that at all. What's that look like for the programmer? Are they just, they're treating their local client side instance as though it's a relational database? Is this what you're saying? Um, 
I, that is one consequence. But the the main point of what I'm saying is that on the server, uh, all things inside of um, Bitcraft happen within a database. So let me explain just a little bit about about how SpaceTimeDB works and what it okay. is actually. So we we built this game and we wanted to do this in this way. So we built a system called SpaceTimeDB, which is fundamentally a database. So it's it's very focused on on persistence. Um, the way it works is you take Bitcraft, you compile it to a WebAssembly module, you right. upload that into uh, the database, and then clients connect directly to the database. And now I hear a lot of people in the audience screaming, oh, you can't do that. Um, you couldn't do that, and it maybe was a bad idea for databases like uh, Postgres and so forth. Um, but uh, we have built a permissions model around SpaceTimeDB that allows you to do that safely. And so... Um, the way that works is uh, you as a client call what we call reducers on the database. They're very similar to stored procedures. Okay. And then those stored procedures, which are written in whatever language you want, that compiles to WebAssembly, will access things from the database and write them back to the database. So just as an example, let's say we had player move. And yeah. notably, everything in Bitcraft, including all the player movement, all the chat, all the trees, all the ground, everything is stored within the database. So if we want to move a player, what we do is we call um, a reducer called move player on the server that updates some rows in the database and then commits those rows and that's it. Then clients, other clients will subscribe to the database state. So they'll say, I want to select star from uh, player position uh, where they are near me, basically would be what that word clause would say. And then all connected clients that have subscribed to that when that player moves, we'll hear about those rows and their updates, uh, and then automatically update it in the in the database. I'm sorry, on their local client. So, hang on, where is the database? The database is uh, on a server uh, stored um, in this case, I believe, in New York. Okay, so how on earth does that possibly work when I'm moving and expecting things to update sixty times a second? So, okay, this is the first thing that's interesting about games. Um, you would not have a tick rate on the server that's 60 times per second unless you were making a game like Counter-Strike. So typically, uh, I'll give you sort of a range. Uh, right. Minecraft updates 20 times per second, so every 50 okay. milliseconds. Um, RuneScape updates, I believe, four times a second, so every quarter of a second. So it's um, there's a variety of, of different levels that you can do. Generally speaking, the larger your game is, obviously the, the fewer updates per second. Uh, you want to be doing because there's so many entities to move within a within a time frame. Yeah, but uh, I mean, I'm in London. I'm not sure I can guarantee four frames a second to New York and back. I see. So uh, I understand your question now. Um, with any game like this, you do not wait for the round trip. So um, how long would the round trip be from New York to London? I actually happen to know it's about 80 milliseconds or 70 milliseconds, something there Okay. About. Um, so it's it's actually not crazy. You can you can play it without what's called client side prediction. But the typical way that you would actually do this is you'd run client side prediction. What does that mean? That means that I, as a client, have some subset of the server state, and when a player, my player, decides to do something, I can predict what the server is going to do to my local state, assuming that it will work. So based on the state of the world as I know it. Yeah. If I try to move, I should be able to update my local state, assuming the server will agree with me. 
And so I will do that. And then I will immediately see the results of that on my own local client. Um, but I will send something to the server. Now, if the server agrees, we basically come back, we reconcile. No problem. If the server disagrees, let's say somebody exploded a bomb that your client hadn't heard about yet. Right. Yeah. Uh, right on top of you. Uh, and the thing you tried to do is invalidated by that. Maybe you're dead now. Yeah. Uh, what will happen is uh, you will have sent a request to the server that says, I want to move. The server uh, interjects and says, actually, you died. Um, what will happen is your client will say, oh, mm, I understand. It will roll back to the point at which you were going to move. And it will then play forward the updates as they actually happen from the server and then try to replay your move. So it would go originally before you heard about from the server. It would go, you're standing here. You move. You actually move. Then what happens is you hear about the bomb. You roll back to the point at which you uh, were about to move. You then blow up because of the bomb. And then you find out, then at that point you try to move, but you can't move because you're dead. Right. Uh, and that's how that reconciles. This sounds very like transaction on the client side. Yes, it does. So is there a database on the client side? Well, um, I believe basically everything is a database. Uh, I have uh, more I could talk about that, but um, essentially, yes. Although typically people don't think of it that way. So mm -hmm. typically the way that people think about it, first of all, in games is with a tick. So... Um, on the client, you would have a frame, essentially, that happens, uh, they would call it like a server frame if it's not the actual render frame. Mm -hmm. So the render frame always happens at 60 uh, frames per second or sometimes now like 120 or 144 or whatever your monitor actually has. Yeah. Um, a server frame typically doesn't go beyond 60 frames per second. And um, it assumes there's a loop and basically we're going to update all the state once a frame. Space9DB actually doesn't make that assumption. You can do that with Space9DB, but it's not a requirement. Uh, so I'll just say that. And there's latency versus throughput trade-offs with that. That's essentially what that, that will end up right. with. Yeah. Because if you have something taking 60 frames per second, the minimum latency that you can have is one uh, 60th of one second. Uh, because it could, you could have the wrong time. You could have tried to do something just as the frame was starting, and now you have to wait the full frame time before you actually... Uh, that effect is applied. Right. Yeah. Um, so now you asked, is the, is the client a database? Uh, what is happening on the client is um, there's really two ways of doing it. And so I want to be careful. Um, in the one way of doing it, the client has a deterministic simulation of the game world. So that means that all of the inputs that are, that are, going to manipulate the game state are being sent to the server and replicated out to the clients. Those clients then receive that input and then they run the game forward a little bit, like one frame. Mm. And they will find out what actually has changed in the game state and they move their state forward. That requires having total knowledge of all of the state. Because if you don't have total knowledge, you're you're non-deterministic because you no longer know what you don't know. You don't know that that bomb might come in from from out uh, outside and actually. Oh um, yeah! If you want total knowledge, you have to have the entire world so you can see events that might be coming over the horizon. Metaphorically. So this yes, yeah. this type of uh, server synchronization really only happens uh, with um, match-based games. Uh, so games with a sort of small state, so like League of Legends, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, 
or like RTSs kind of, which is a, sort of a, another mash-based game where the inputs are quite simple, but the outputs are quite complex. So you might click here to move a group of guys, but 500 guys might move. And so that's actually a lot of data to say where all the positions of them are, but you don't have to do that. You just have to replicate, ah, I clicked here or this player clicked here. And thus, when I play my deterministic simulation forward, all the guys will move within my simulation. I don't have to communicate that data over the network. Okay, yeah, I can see that. So that's one way of doing it. For MMOs, part of the reason they're so difficult is you can't do that because I cannot possibly have the total state of the world um, on my client. It's too big, yeah. sort of fundamentally, by, by yeah, design. You, I can't put the whole of World of Warcraft and all its players on every single machine. Correct. Alas, you cannot. So <laughs> instead what they do is... Um, Typically, the way this would work is you have your game server. That game server knows what a game client is. And when they connect, they know where the player is. And they have a bunch of special logic to say, okay, I know what this player is. I know what they need. I'm going to send down that data to the client. Uh, and then I'm going to send down that data to the client, um, uh, let's say, once a frame. So, so every frame, I will compute, okay, what has changed on the server? And I'm going to send a bunch of messages down saying these are the new positions of, of all the players. Um, that's the typical way of doing it. Now, notably, this means that you have baked in what your client wants to know about into your server code. Because you as the server need to know what they need to know because you're going to do this streaming update to them. Yeah. So it's more complex than, for, for example, let's say a, a web site with a GraphQL query. Because with a GraphQL query... You can say, oh, I'm this kind of client, and I want to know all about this data. And I'm this kind of client, and I want to know about this data. But because games are streaming, and they need to go fast, and they have this tick-based thing built into it, historically, people have built them so that you write all the code for synchronizing the clients, and you build in some concepts. Like, you probably build in the concept of positions and of players, and that players want to know about things that are around them and all of that good stuff. So if you were right. to then go build an AI that doesn't care about where certain players are, maybe it's trying to regrow the trees or something, um, and it wants to listen to the data, no can do. You've already built in the particular query that, that wants to be done on that game server state. Right. So, so we're inverting the control so that the server, the server knows what kind of things you would want and pushes those to you. Correct. So that really bakes in the... The server then has to have very fixed ideas about what kind of people connect and what they might want to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Correct. Um, what Space Time Duty does is the opposite. We actually treat it sort of from a formal database perspective and say, actually, clients are just going to write queries, which, they're, which are going to be executed with a query engine um, in a subscription-based streaming way. So first, um, we connect uh, and we send a query and we say, I want to listen to all of these players in this region or whatever we, we are interested in. And then that data will be incrementally streamed down. So as the data changes in the database, we compute that query for all the subscribed things and we send it down uh, to their clients. Then you can think of their clients as having a replica of the server database. Now that replica is a subset of the data and it is only prefix consistent. So it's not strongly consistent. Um, you, what do you mean by prefix consistent? You have the database state as it existed at some point in time in the past. So you have all of the updates in a prefix of the message log, if you, or of the of the um, write ahead log. 
Okay. Up to a certain point. That's what I mean. Now it's a subset. So it's not, I have the whole database. I have some set of the data as it was in time. So it's not eventually consistent. Yeah. Correct. I don't see any weird things about it. I will see the database state as it was maybe like five milliseconds ago, or, or if I'm far away, 100 milliseconds ago. Right, yeah. Um, and so what that allows us to do is then you can query your local database as though it were the actual database. And so you can get this this information out um, from your local database uh, much more conveniently and faster than you might otherwise do in a normal game uh, server. You'll forgive me being uh, really boring here, but I'm translating this into a non-gaming world. And I sure. can see, I can imagine, I, I as, a, as a client of, let's say a client of a bank or a trading platform, I might want to have all the data relating to my accounts and maybe some of my counterparties, but not the entire bank's data. And then I want to be able to optimistically make transactions on that data. They get sent Mm -hmm. back to the central server and I get told if that worked, but I can progress as though it did. Yes. And that would be exactly the same architecture we're talking about in the gaming world. 100%. Yes. So... What we are in some sense trying to do is unify across both of those things. Um, a lot of people, and why why is that important? Because many people have tried to make a a game uh, service, game server backend kind of thing, like in, like a, a game engine, but for the server, right? Yeah. So there's Unity. You've got Unreal. Wouldn't it be nice if somebody made that for the backend? The problem that people have is that. When you think about what a game is, on the client, it's the same across all games. If I'm playing chess or solitaire, what I want to do on the client is very similar to what I want to do in World of Warcraft, right? Let's say I'm making a 3D solitaire, right? I am rendering objects on a screen, and all, I have all of that stuff. It's all kind of the same across both both games, right? I want to r- render a 3D world. I want a loop that applies some logic to the state of that world, and then I want to, yes, and I want to turn it into um, 3D objects and I want to project them onto a screen and I want to do lighting effects and I want to do sound effects and I want to do all of that. Every yeah. game from the client perspective is not identical, but they are, they rhyme. They have a lot in common that an engine could do that yeah. we don't have to write over and over and over again, essentially. Yeah, yeah. On the server, if you think about what chess versus World of Warcraft is, those architectures are... They share nothing. They're, they're, they might as well. One is like a web app kind of, right? Like a chess move. I could build that with a web server in Node.js and all that. And the other one is a very complex, um, multi-user, um, fast move, fast changing state thing, uh, which synchronizes data persistently to the database and updates positions and all of that. So what we're trying to do in some sense with SpaceTimeDB is close over all of those things. And you really have to go all the way back to the database for it to be general enough to actually apply to both of those scenarios. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. Sounds like a colossal amount of work to do well, though. It does. <laughs> Nobody knows this better than, than I do. Um, I'll, let me put it to you this way, though, with respect to that. When we decided we were going to make Bitcraft, we were committed to making such a system. The fact that it's available as its own standalone thing is not really that much more work. Every MMO that you have ever seen has an architecture which is at least as complicated 
as um, SpaceTimeDB. And I actually know that some of them, uh, I can't necessarily name them, mm. operate in the same sort of stored procedure way because it's the sort of convergent evolution that they arrived at. But they just didn't formally call it a database. So we it's in some sense an easier problem because if you if you treat it as a database formally, you get to use all of the research and um, learnings that 50 years of database research has brought about. You do not have to reinvent the wheel is what I'm saying uh, on a lot of these things. And so um, we were always destined to create a system that's like this. As soon as we decided we wanted to, to actually create, create this kind of uh, thing. Okay. Ours is arguably just not sort of shoestring and duct tape, not to disparage anyone else. It's very hard to build an MMORPG, but yeah, yeah. Um, that's kind of how I would think but, about it. Let, let's say rather than that, it's not an afterthought. Not an afterthought. Yes, yeah, yeah. correct. Okay. okay, so what we've got here is a system where I, as the game programmer, um updating a row in a deck someone moves the joystick up i update the y position of their player's row in a database correct magically that's going to be synchronized to the server without me worrying about it and correct. roll back if it turned out it didn't work and then i just have a rendering function that's also looking at my local database and drawing uh, it to the screen that is correct yes that's essentially yeah. correct Okay, um, let's start with the first objection. That's going to be too slow, even even if you don't have to do the server round trip every time. So let me ask a, a follow-up question to your question. Um, what specifically would be too slow? Uh, because there's a, what I want to ascertain is exactly what you're talking about. There is a perception that databases are slow, and may, perhaps that's... Um, uh, what you're driving at i think because okay it's got to be transactional it's probably iterate once you get into things like all oh, my bullets flying across the screen and hitting people it's updating a considerable amount of data and if collision detection it's got to happen a lot of times a second i won't give you the number you can give it to me but that feels like that feels like that's going to grind on a transactional database. Okay, so this is a great question, and I understand where you're coming from. Um, and you had to—we had to be a little bit crazy to think that this was a thing that should be done originally. Um, but for several reasons, which I'm about to outline, uh, I think you will come to agree that actually that's completely possible and plausible to do within a database context. So the first thing I, I will draw your attention to is that we're not by no means the first to do things like this um, uh, in history. There is a database called Times 10, which was developed in the 90s. Oh, that was bought out by Oracle, wasn't it? It was bought out by Oracle, correct. Yeah. And it actually has a very similar architecture to SpaceTimeDB. So a couple of things. One, it's fully in memory. So the whole purpose of that database was that for certain very high throughput, low latency applications. Current databases weren't hacking it. Not even that. Current like server architectures weren't weren't hacking it. So what they decided to do is to have a database, have in-memory state in that database, 
put the logic of your program physically within the same process as that database and then have you access the data within the same process. So you're, you're literally reaching into your current program memory. You're treating your program memory as though it were a database. And then what they do is all the updates to that data, they append in an append-only fashion to a write-ahead log. Okay. And this was developed for like telecom uh, processing, like routing calls, um, these kinds of very, very low latency, high throughput things. Yeah. That's the almost identical architecture, actually, to how SpaceTime operates. We have just modernized it for um, use with WebAssembly and the, whatever language you would like and some nice things on top of that, including subscribing to the database, which I don't believe Times 10 actually provides that, that information. Okay, but that's um, that right-ahead log... That yes. there we've got into persistence, which you said is important. Yes. Isn't that um, a blocker to the performance? Uh, not, not typically. So uh, first thing I would say is that appending to a write-ahead log is actually quite performant on modern hardware. So that's actually how Kafka works, and it's how it's assumed to work, right? And Kafka is known as sort of a low-latency streaming thing. It's not that low-latency because of details, Um but it's relative to what a lot of people use, very low latency. Yeah, okay, yeah. The other thing that's important to know about Kafka and systems like that um, is that you can trade off throughput for latency. So in the case of Kafka, you can batch more things up, uh, which will cause the latency to increase, but will cause the throughput to go up. You can always say, I care about latency more than I care about throughput. So I will decrease it down to just one transaction. So that would make sense for, I want a really high, fast-paced game yeah. where I really want the lowest possible latency or, you know, I don't really care if things come in late. So that's that's one thing. The next thing I would say is that for games or really any application, choosing the level of durability that you want should be configuration and not code. So what I mean by that is I ought to be able to decide that I want to listen to data that might not be persisted to disk um, because I don't actually care about that, right? For, for a player movement, if, they, if my server crashes and they move back 10 feet, uh, yeah. don't really care about that. If I'm running a bank transaction and it rolls back the last 10 seconds or whatever of um, bank transactions could be a problem because I might have already they might have already given away the item that the guy bought, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. Is that so? You, when you say that's configuration, are you configuring it on a per object type basis? So could so I mix would, and match levels of um, persistency guarantees? You actually configure it on a subscriber basis. So you would say, "Hey, I'm going to subscribe to this data, and for this particular subscription." I want to see the data as soon as it updates. I don't care if it's ready. Like, I want to hear about... So there's sort of le levels at which you can listen in. So there's a, there's a pipeline of data that comes in. My message happens. I update the data. That changes the stuff in memory. I write it to disk. I replicate it to other machines, all of this. And at any point in time, you can decide, like, you know what? It's good enough. I want to listen in here. Right? So I want to listen in after it's been updated in memory versus I want to listen after it's been persisted to disk versus I want to listen only when it's re been replicated to five machines. That's right, a yeah. sort of a different level of um, okay. listening, if that makes sense. Uh, 
I'm jumping around trying to get my handle or sure. my hands all over. The, but okay, so how does that work? Programming. I let's say the score, the player's score, sure, right, is gradually ticking up. It's not the end of the world if it maybe rolls back a little bit. Am I writing some code that just subscribes to the score changing and just renders that corner of the screen? Um, you certainly or, could do that. Uh, typically, what what a client will do is they'll subscribe to all the data that they want right up front. So they'll say like. Let's say it's a match, chess match. You'll say, I want to subscribe to all the piece positions, or yeah. I want to subscribe to, it depends on how you program that match, but let's say you're going to do it in a certain way. I'm going to pr- listen to all the piece positions, and I want to l- subscribe to the score. You don't actually, a lot of cases, you can actually compute the score on the client based on the state of the game. Um, but let's say you can't it, for some reason in this game, you would subscribe to the score as well. And then that will be updated in a row, and you'll just say, from score table, subscribe. Uh, select all f- star from, essentially. Okay. And am I doing like a, am I joining those data sets? So select all from pieces, union, select all from score. Yeah, so um, in this case, you're you're going to basically select a subset of each server table. We do not yet support um, subscription joins. Mm, we do actually. Uh, so we support uh, what's called a, a semi-join. So you may filter out rows from a table based on a join from another table. So for example, I might want to subscribe to all players who's, who are friends with this other person. So I would write a okay, join. Yeah. and I could, But I would always get the whole player row, and I'm not going to get any like player plus other data. If you want to do that, you would subscribe to the other table as well. And then we union okay. all of those together and send them down. Okay. And are we writing this query in SQL? SQL, currently. We, so there's no reason we can't also support other query languages like GraphQL in the future. It's just for right now, for building an MMORPG, <laughs> we need SQL. Okay. So as a game programmer, I'm writing, like you say, very much like stored procedures that have a mixture of SQL and okay. coding. And like, what's the language? So the language is, uh, the, the module that you're writing is a WebAssembly module. So it's any language that you want that compiles to WebAssembly. Notably, um, it, we support Rust and C Sharp in terms of building a library of nice things for you to use in those languages. Um, in principle, anybody else could do whatever language they want that compiles to uh, WebAssembly. Um, but yeah, those are the, the two that we support right now. Okay. Um, uh, the, uh... I risk framing this all as objections, but I'm trying to think. Sure. No, think no, please. The I, it, there is, it is an objectionable idea um, that <laughs> happens to work. And so it's, it's, it's quite uh, exciting. Okay. So the, the other thing that people always complain about with store procedures, I mean, a lot of people dislike store procedures. And I do, think yes. the reason is, I think there's two reasons. One is the language can be weird for store procedures. Personally, I reject that one. If it's valuable enough, you'll learn the language. The real one is management of store procedures is is a misery, generally. Correct. Yes, it is. And I think these are the... So I would actually go a little bit further, too. The permissions model of store procedures at times can be arcane as well. Um, so yeah. I believe it's really, to your point, fundamentally a user experience problem, not a theoretical or technological problem if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, it's like the, developer experience rather than this simply doesn't work. 
Yes. I mean, why? It's a, if you actually think about store procedures as they were, it's a nightmare. You have data that's in your database operating that's opaque because somebody updated it, but you don't, it's not in version control. You don't have any idea like <laughs> yeah. what was running. Did somebody change it? Um, oh, it, it's like, where is it stored? It's just a nightmare. Yeah. yeah. So it's a great point. Um, what I will say to this is actually, we didn't set out to build a database and store procedures. What, what actually happened is we built a system that had the, the right UX for what we wanted our developers to have and then looked at it and said like, oh, from this angle, actually, this is just a database with store procedures. Um, so it was very much a, we backed into it, we didn't arrive there. Right. So that's number one. Developer experience is the most important aspect of SpaceTimeDB. And if it is bad, there's no point to doing it. That was why we created it in the first place. The way we solve these problems are, number one, is we put all of the store procedures uh, as like the, the root of your database. It, it is all in a single module that's based from a single repo, in, in this case, mm-hmm. um, that you can version in version control. And then you can see the versions of it. The thing I would liken it to from a developer experience perspective, and now I'm going to say something that will uh, maybe trigger a lot of people, um, but uh, is it's similar in principle uh, to smart contracts. So from okay. Davis, right? You, you, and nobody thinks the developer experience of those is bad, except the fact that they have to deal with the blockchain. Um <laughs> But ultimately, and the what programming doing, languages can be pretty terrible. But. And the programming languages can be pretty terrible. But fortunately, we've solved both of those problems by removing the blockchain and <laughs> making it so you can use whatever programming language you like. Um, right. Uh, and so, but it's the same idea, right? You do not need a DevOps team to maintain, or an operations team, or any of that, or AWS credits, or any of that to run your uh, smart contract. What you do is you say, publish. You set it, you forget it, you walk away. Like, you don't have to deal with that ever again. It's running, someone's running it for you. You really, truly don't care. Uh, and that is the promise of the developer experience that I think we can provide with store procedures. And it's very easy in the case of smart contracts um, to keep them in sync. Normally, actually, in a lot of systems, you can't update your smart contracts. So that's one thing. <laughs> uh, but in our <laughs> case, you can you can update uh, a space time to module. And it comes from a database, and you can see the version that was up there. And the version is stored in the log. So... Um, the fact that you're updating your whole database and you can do migrations within your uh, uh, module and you're doing the whole module at a time vastly, vastly improves it. Then you have your the language that you want to work within, which is a normal programming language. Uh, and then on top of that, we have built a permissions model that allows you to um, have complex uh, logic, which is easy to understand by the developer, if that makes sense. Okay, let's go through um, the permissions thing. For instance, um, if I've got access to subscribing to data from the server, I would very much like, I I wouldn't, hypothetical black hat me, would very much like to use it to cheat on the game. Absolutely. By subscribing to other people's data. Okay, so first thing I'll note, um, all games uh, of the first type that I described, where they have a deterministic client and they're replicating inputs, must know about all data in those games. So League of Legends, you can cheat. In fact, they have, they're doing like a kernel extension to prevent people from cheating, but that's beside the point. Um, they uh, require you to see all data. So if you see Fog of War in an RTS, you could, that data, everything under that Fog of War is there. You could remove the Fog of War on your client and see all of the units. So sad times. So first of all, they're, they're just right out. They, they don't provide that to you at all. Um, in our case... 
what you can do is there's two types of permissions. There's, there's sort of write permissions and then there's read permissions, right? So if you uh, want to update the database, clients are only allowed to update the database through the module. And so what that'll be is like, let's say I wanted to move a player, but I try to um, move a player in a way that's illegal. Like I'm trying to go into this level, this place where I need to be level 56 and I'm only level 50. Uh, what the server will do is it'll check the level of the player because you're just writing the logic and you'll just fail the transaction. So you'll just say, no, we can't do that. We roll everything back and we throw it away. All right, so that's, that's the first thing. The way that works is each client has an identifier, uh, which is called the identity. Makes sense. Um, it's kind of like an Ethereum address. If you want to liken it to something in that regard, you can see who that person is. Okay. Um, and then you can say, can the, you do all the checks, all the procedural checks you want in the whole world? Is this player friends with that? Or do, do they know each other? Whatever it is. And then fail a transaction if it's not allowed. So that's, that's the right. So write is super simple, very, very easy to do. From a read perspective, um, there's a couple layers that you can do. So first of all, what we implement today is private tables. So that's just, hey, this, this table is only viewable by the owner of the, of the, um, the module, so basically the database creator. Um, and uh, we would like to add, so we have not yet added, because it's not yet um, 1.0, um, both column permissions and then column read uh, permissions and then row level security. So what that means is um, you should be able to write a function inside of your module that says, um, well, in the case of column, you're just going to annotate columns as being private, right? And mm -hmm. that's, that's pretty straightforward. For um, row level security, that means like, can this person see this row? So if they subscribe to these players, maybe this player's invisible and I shouldn't be able to see them right now right so you want to be able to write a filter function on a table so so a filter function that applies to a table that allows you to do arbitrary procedural logic that basically says whether or not this player should be um or this row in this table should be visible to this subscriber so if i had like a, a hypothetical card game of some kind where sure. i have cards that only i can see cards that all my teammates can see and sure. cards that the opponent can also see. Would I be yes. able to model that? You certainly would. So you'd be able. You'd, what you'd do is you'd say, let's say you just have one table called cards, mm -hmm. and you'd write a, a, a function that says, um, "This is the subscriber," uh, which like this is the identity of the subscriber. Uh, do you want to show this row or these batch of rows, or however we end up ultimately implementing it for performance reasons? Um, and you would look through the row, and you would say, "Ah, is this who is the owner of this card?" I am the owner of this card. I can see it. Oh, I'm not the owner of this card. Is the owner of this card my teammate? Uh, okay, I can see it. I am, you know, and, and so forth, and whatever right, yeah. complex logic you want. Okay, and I'm writing those functions in the same language. In yes, in Rust yeah. or, or whatever language you. Okay, so you're so using. the language to define security rules is the general purpose language you're using. The general purpose language, and it's okay. it's a procedural language. You know, not going very fancy. Obviously, you can do you can do what, uh, for example. Uh, Superbase does, which is they have you write those row-level security rules in um, SQL. Uh, so we may also support that. I'm not sure right now, but um, boy, it is a lot easier to write Rust than some arcane SQL query about row-level security. I'll tell you that. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, right. Where does that leave us? So um, 
is my experience programming the server side similar to my experience programming the client side? Okay, this is a fantastic question. Um, let me tell you where we are today and the, the vision for where okay. we want to be with, with, with SpaceMDB. So where we are today is um, you write your server module that runs on the server. It's written in, let's say, Rust. You write your client. We have a Rust SDK. And what that does is um, gives you a bunch of functions that you can uh, use, like subs a subscribe function where you can pass in all your SQL queries and then you can get all the data back. The Rust SDK currently stores that data internally. Um, so it has this like data, little mini database, if you will, like a little mini in memory, and you can query that data. Hmm. Um, the querying of that data is relatively rudimentary. It's based on um, uh, code generation that we do. Uh, so your module has a has a has a bunch of types, right, and a bunch of schemas and all that stuff. You can take a module and then you can extract the schema from that module, and then you can code generate whatever type of clients you want. So, for example, um, you can call a particular function from the client. You can um, get the type the so if you have a rust module and a c-sharp client as we do you can get the c-sharp equivalent type to the rust type on your client if that makes sense okay which is important because that's another thing with with um, store procedures is that like oh the types like you hopefully the types work because <laughs> it's like dynamic it's who knows it's just crazy uh the way they do things or you have to sort of like apply a type and you have to maintain the types we are um co-generating a lot it's like protobuf right so you you have your schema we scoop that out of your module it's like a protobuf representation of your schema mm. you can then co-generate on whatever client you want whatever types you need so typescript we support four right now typescript python uh rust and c sharp for clients okay yeah but when i call those functions they're still going to the local um space time tb client instance okay so um, they do, and then they, they get sent they out to the server. We don't okay. automatically do client-side prediction right now. That is something that, for example, in Bitcraft, we have to replicate the, um, the uh, logic of. So if you move a player, you have to move them like yourself. You have to rewrite the logic in C-sharp, and then you have to write the logic in Rust. That's typically how a lot of people do this, these things, and it is a huge pain. They duplicate the logic, and they have to do this thing, and it's, it's a huge pain. Yeah. Some more clever people, actually I know of some that are developing um, uh, an RTS, um, use WebAssembly. And they uh, run the, the server both on the client and the server, and they do that. And so that's ultimately where we'd like to go with this. So ultimately we want to run SpaceNDB not only in the server, but also in the client, and have them synchronize between each other automatically based on your subscriptions. Yeah. And then you have a fully running um, module. So the same module that's running on the server is running on the client. And when you update, when you do a call, actually we run the actual server logic on your client, update that, and then that does the whole reconciliation. So you automatically get client-side prediction for free. I can that's see that. Really appealing. How, how far away do you think that is? Um, it's a good question. So in a sense, we're already doing it uh, on the what we call space to be cloud, which is our cloud offer. So we have, okay, there are two versions of space to be there's space to be, um, standalone, which is the open source version that's, uh, on GitHub. Uh, you can take a look at that, everything that'll run like a single node, uh, clustered, uh, as though it were 
your own personal instance of space entity. We also have cloud, which is a distributed system, which will run many machines and coordinate between them all. And the way we replicate from one to the other is sort of the normal way in which you would replicate a client. So they're all just clients of each other is an interesting thing. Right. And that has a lot of implications for strong consistency, but I don't think we have time to get into that. But <laughs> either way, um, we're working towards that, I suppose, on the server. And then um, we will do that as soon as we can on the client. We're also building an MMORPG, so we're a little bit busy. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm not sure exactly when that'll be, but it is still useful in the way that it is right now. That is to say, not automatically doing client-side prediction. Um, but we will we will eventually do that. I envision a world. So here's the secret. Here's the real secret to what Space Time to be is. Actually, it's not really a database at all. What it really is is a distributed operating system uh, in the spirit of Plan 9, which has never um, sort of taken off. Let me explain. Okay. Briefly. So <laughs> Space Time to be Cloud, as I mentioned, runs over, let's say, 100 computers. Right, mm -hmm. So you've got this, this thing that's running. From the outside, it looks like just one instance of SpaceTimeDB. So you can't really tell that it is made up of 100 computers. And what you're doing is you're taking a program and you're running it on that distributed computer. So it looks, again, like a single computer. Um, yeah. And you're running a program on it. And we're abstracting away the hardware. Boy, that does sound like an operating system, doesn't it? Um, and so uh, that is really ultimately where we'd like to go is, is, a, is a place where the cloud is not this collection of hardware and services that you have to piece together in this grotesque fashion. But really, um, it is just a giant computer. And you're yeah. going to take your program and you're going to run it on that giant computer. And that's it. This is going to be even more blurred when you've got a series of clients connecting into that who are themselves similarly programmed. Correct. And so what you might say is that you're building a gigantic distributed um, operating system that the whole world runs on top of, right? <laughs> you, could, you could say that if you were so bold. Um, and I don't know that we are yet, but, but one day perhaps we will. So the idea would be um, that you're all operating on the same... Uh, protocol uh, to uh, speak with each other and that you can't really even tell I mean there's a lot of details in, in this one and to be quite honest I haven't thought through all of it but if everybody's speaking the same language you have all of these modules subscribing to each other it's just the actor model you know what it is it's very similar to Erlang right it's got the same kind of spirit you've got these actors and they are sending messages to each other and they're listening to um, messages that are being sent to them and they're updating their state, and they're moving on. So it's it's um, very much in that spirit. Okay. Let me ask you this, and you may not like this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Sure. If someone thought, this is a great idea, but I'm not waiting for you to do it, I'm going to build this on Erlang myself. Sure. What parts would they be missing? What parts would they find hard? Yeah, so the whole database part, right? So don't forget about that. So <laughs> I, I've thought about this um, in a sense. So let's say you want to build this on Erlang. Cool. Uh, what is Erlang missing? Well, it's missing the persistence. I know they have persistent actors, um, but the performance of that is key. Uh, the size of each actor is key. So within a space on DB actor, if you think about them as actors, mm. um, we also do mon um, multi-version concurrency control so that we can run as many transactions as possible within one machine, as sort of one actor as you might 
possibly be able to do, right? Mm -hmm. So you want each actor to be as large as possible before you start going into other actors because as soon as you go into distributed systems, it's complicated. Uh, and you can do a lot with a single machine, it turns out. Hmm. Um, although each actor could, in principle, be more than one machine, but that I, I digress. That's another direction to go in <laughs> down in the future. Um, and then there's the whole relational model. So you need to build, on top of Erlang, the ability to uh, do queries on the rows and get the actual row data out, all of the type system stuff. You'd want to be able to run in whatever language you you would like to because maybe um, you're programmers are familiar with C-sharp because they're Unity developers and all that. Okay. Let's say uh, also, now what about the subscription? So actors in the Erlang model, as I understand, you can send messages to other clients, but that's kind of like the old way of doing it with the game servers where I need to know what this other actor wants to know or build a subscription system where they send me a message, which is their subscription, and then I run the whole query engine and then I send them what they need to know, which is what we have done. So you have to build that whole query subscription system up uh, from the ground as well. So good luck to you. And I would love to see and use your system if you do that, because <laughs> we wanted to make a game. We, <laughs> yeah, we are doing this because we must. Okay. Then, um, perhaps we should wrap it up with the last two questions. If someone decides they don't want to do that, um, what status space time DB in for me as an, as a user, can I go and yes. play with it? Uh, you absolutely can. So you can go to spacetimedb.com. Uh, you can play with the demo. It's right there. Uh, you can also um, very quickly go to our quick start guide, install SpaceTimeDB, get a local instance of it running, SpaceTime standalone. Uh, you can upload a module to that. You can connect to that. You can call functions on that. Um, you can also upload to our uh, testnet. So our testnet is a version of SpaceTimeDB Cloud, which is um, relatively nascent, um, but it's meant for you to play around with what the cloud version will be. It's completely free. Um, we give you sort of a... a free amount of energy uh and energy is sort of what powers these things it's yeah. not actual energy to be clear uh, it's just points uh credit you can think of it aws credits we give you aws credits right yeah um uh, and you can go go to town on that uh and then uh notably for the test net we reserve the right uh monthly to uh wipe the data because we're still uh updating the abi and we don't want to be locked in yet but um early this year so we're trying for, let's say, April uh, to move into 1.0 and the main net. So the main net of SpaceTimeDB will be the version of SpaceTimeDB where you, we guarantee that your data is going to be there forever. Uh, and it will be uh, persisted and replicated and all that good stuff. Okay. Um, and so um, you can begin building your applications now for a launch uh, post-April. Okay. Um, and this, here's another dangerous question because there's only really one right answer. <laughs> Is your game Bitcraft going to be running on that testnet? On already that mainnet? Already it already is. is. So we yes, hundred percent. Okay, and we are working on. So a lot of our focus right now is getting the performance um, to where it needs to be. So Bitcraft used to run on what we called JankTimeDB, which uh, was like SpaceTimeDB, but it was the thing that we built first, and it was not its own product, uh, and um, that worked quite well, uh, but it actually was more like the traditional old servers where the server knew what the client wanted. Um, and it was relatively performant and we're now getting back to that point that, um, uh, right around now we had the same performance of jank time DB. And now, um, as we gear up for the alpha, which by the way, sign up for the Bitcraft alpha, it's happening, um, early this year as well. I'll put a link uh, in the show notes. Yes. Um, and, uh, 
we are getting to the point where we are at that performance level that we need for that alpha. So that's like, well, I don't want to, I don't know how much I can say without upsetting the Bitcraft team, but it's many more users than we had previously concurrently running in the game. Right. Cool. Well, you've got a busy year, busy few years coming up. We surely do. We surely do. Awesome. Well, good luck with SpaceTime TB. I hope it takes off. Good luck with Bitcraft. I hope that takes off. And if they both take off, you're going to invite me to your private yacht for a follow-up. I don't know that I'll have one of those. I'll be too busy uh, on the next part of Space Time to be. So. Well, good luck. I need satellite from there. <laughs> yeah, you'll be able to afford it if both of those work. I, I guess so. I guess yeah. so. Tyler, well, thank thanks you so very much. much for joining us. Cheers. Thanks for having me. And that's all from Tyler. Thank you very much. You know, in among all the things we discussed in there, I think Tyler must be something like our third guest to reference the Plan 9 operating system. And I don't know much about Plan 9, except it never took off, but it was a huge influence for a lot of people. I think we might have to have some kind of retrospective what we could have learned as an industry episode on Plan 9 one day. So if you're a Plan 9 expert, or if you know one, please get in touch. And the way you get in touch is the same way you send us any feedback. My contact details are in the show notes. If you're on YouTube, there's a comment box just down there. Spotify has a Q&A thing for each episode these days, and so on and so on. Check your app. On the subject of feedback and of future episodes, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a like or a comment. If you think other people should find this podcast, please rate it or share it with a friend. And make sure you're subscribed, because we're going to be back next week with more interesting voices from the software development world. Until then, I've been your host, Chris Jenkins. This has been Developer Voices with Tyler Cloutier. Thanks for listening.